0: Good morning, and welcome back to the Patreon exclusive podcast, "Dance Dorothy Dance." This is the Dorothy Arzner podcast. Uh, I'm B Peterson. I'm your host, and with me, as always, is uh, Mark Edward
1: Hoyk, uh, film historian and uh, general pain in the ass cinematic
0: know-it-all. We're we're here at the screen's margins. We're honest with our with our with our uh, 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 snootiness. Um. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, today uh, we are going to be discussing... Um, it's, a, it's a. like uh, The Last of Mrs. Cheney. This is kind of an uh, uh, odd entry into Dorothy Arzner's filmography because, once again, we're not entirely sure because we know that she did direct some of this movie, but we we're not really sure what in this movie she directed. Um, but today we're talking about um, the 1930 uh, review film uh, paramount on parade or rather the the copyright the the version that it is the in the public domain which is officially titled 1930 review because once again like with get your man we are dealing with um, a a partial film and yeah
1: yes uh that in br- in brief there uh, uh, there is a good amount of material that has been lost to the ages. There is a restoration that UCLA did of what they've been able to cobble together, mostly uh, consisting of color material that was deleted when the film went into TV syndication. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we saw contains no color material there is one segment that was shot in color but uh printed down to black and white and it is it so stands out from the remainder of the movie in terms of just how it looks it, it looks doopy you know even though the whole movie itself looks doopy because it you know it's a, a PD print and there are many instances where there was a lead in to a color sequence where the lead in is there, but you don't actually get the
0: sequence, and you're like, "Yeah, hey, what happened to this?" <laughs> hold on, I was promised all of these big name actors, and I never got to see them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that's that was the the first time that that happened. I was I was caught off guard. Like, hold on, were we not about to hear someone sing, and now we're in a hospital? I'm not in to Where what's going on? Um, but yeah, this is this is uh, uh it's it's i i mean this is i haven't review films used to be a thing this is what this was essentially the precursor to the to the modern musical these review films where before before the musical numbers were tied to the plot or and let alone that they were progressing the plot in the songs like this is this is what we got in the the vein of a uh, hollywood review broadway melody it was just let's just put all of these famous people in segments and have them sing and dance and and have and there will be some skits throughout and yeah, it's this enti- it's this genre of film that doesn't really exist um, anymore, and it was it was it was it was fun, just kind of just hopping. It's like a bunch of shorts. It's a shorts yeah, compilation, it, well, really. Well, and I I want to I, I want to
1: bring up the fact that uh, a couple years after this uh, was released, Paramount started doing a whole series of shorts called Hollywood on Parade. Right. You know, th- these were about seven minutes long, and they were mostly to showcase all the talent they had under contract. But they would delve into you know people working at rival studios, especially uh, if there was a novel way to do it. Uh, one of them featured uh, a puppeteer who had marionettes of uh, Greta Garbo and uh, Clark Gable, and putting them through the marks and. And it has the same kind of patchwork structure as this feature in that there's this very loose clothes line that the material is hung up on as an excuse to do a musical number or a, a comedy sketch. And there are, there are some famous moments uh, that have emerged from these shorts you know, repurposed elsewhere. There is one where an actress uh, pretending to be Betty Boop is uh, attacked by Bella Lugosi, who says, you have booped your last boop. <laughs> and there is another segment, which is a rare instance of the three Stooges, not in one of their Columbia shorts, because the Stooges had started off as the, the side talent to a performer named Ted Healy at MGM and they had left the studio when they were between contracts and they did this appearance in a Hollywood on Parade short. Uh, n- most of them are on YouTube like some are compiled into one big file and some of them are individually spaced out and I I used to watch a show on PBS called uh, Matinee at the Bijou. It was a 90 minute program that was designed to recreate what a Saturday afternoon movie would be in a theater, and that it would have a, a classic cartoon, a short subject, a serial, and a feature. Now, you know, because it's a 90 minute show, even with no commercials, it usually meant the feature was chopped down to like 45 minutes or an hour at most, plus they were all pulled from public domain sources. So you were getting uh, a grab bag in terms of uh, picture quality, but they showed a lot of the Hollywood on parade shorts and that along with watching all of the major studio theatrical cartoons of the, the four, the thirties through the fifties that were aired on television. That was in a sense how I became culturally literate about All of this stuff that happened before I was even born. And there's a lot of writers who have talked about the fact that up until a certain point uh, that even with the rise of cable for for many years, there was a certain bit of cultural literacy that every child developed simply from watching all of these cartoons and old movies because, you know, that was all that was on and you just watched whatever was on and you gradually became aware of all of these people. And now because there is so much out there and we can curate our own plate that we are losing a lot of that cultural osmosis.
0: Mm -hmm, For sure. I was thinking for this because it is uh, a series of shorts. If if maybe it would just it would it would serve us to just kind of go through each uh, uh, sequence that we saw and just discuss them individually. Um, So I think
1: yeah, and also I at least will specu. I'll take a wild speculation on what material feels like Arzner's. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the maddening <laughs> thing about this movie is that there are several directors credited mm. but I I looked as long and hard well within the stretches of the internet, you know, if if I were in LA and I could go to the Margaret Herrick uh, library maybe I'd have better luck, but mm. there's almost nothing to indicate what director worked on which segment. That there's basically just sort of Speculation, for example, that almost all of the segments involving Maurice Chevalier are probably uh, Ernst Lubitsch
0: Mm -hmm. directing,
1: because Lubitsch had directed him in other features. And I think maybe that is the key in that think of who these people worked with at the studio, and that is likely the person who did their segment.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And the reason that we don't know a large reason why we don't know who directed what is because we don't have the credits. We don't have the title sequence. Um, That is I mean, we open with 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 our our Paramount logo. Um, But after that, it's pretty much just 1930 review. And then we're. Then we're already past a couple a couple bits because we don't have the we don't have the title sequence, um, which uh, featured Kay Francis and George Bancroft. Um, only the sound survives, and so if the restored version has has the sound of that, but we don't have we didn't get to see that. And um,
1: also, that would have been in color, so uh, right. the the Paramount logo would have been in color. Yeah, you know, that this was a substitution that was made when the movie went in into syndication because at that time there were very few homes that had color TV sets and not that many. you know, NBC was broadcasting in color fairly regularly because RCA had a patented color system. And okay. the other networks uh, would occasionally either have to borrow it, so they were, very judicious about when they did because, you know, they hated giving money to a rival mm-hmm. or they were you know, working on their own color process. But independent stations, you know, the, the kinds of stations that would be buying these film packages certainly did not have the means to broadcast in color. So there would have been there would have been seen to be no reason to include that in a syndication print. And, you know, that's what we're left with.
0: And uh after the title sequence we go into the first big scene, Showgirls on Parade with Mitzi Mayfair, and we don't have it because it was Technicolor, um, and that Technicolor footage has been lost, and only the sound survives of that. So <laughs> um so already we've got so much good stuff that we're missing. Um, uh, but yeah, that that what but we do what we're what we see after the the opening 1930 review. What we actually the first scene that we do see is the we're the masters of ceremony scene with uh, Jack Oakey, uh Richard Gallagher, and Leon Errol, and they introducing themselves. They're all dressed up, interrupting each other, and say, "Yes, we're the masters of ceremony," and they're harmonizing. And yeah, that's that's uh, that's our introduction. Yeah, uh, you know that. Viewing
1: that, I, I'm thinking. I think there, wa- there, there clearly was a convention of the time, uh, because the 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 review film was, as you brought up, you know, this amalgam of of musical and sketch, because you had stage musicals. At the time, you know, people were writing, you know, operettas and stuff, you know, maybe the stage musical as we know it, you know, even like the Rodgers and Hammerstein Mm -hmm. uh, style didn't come around until later. But so there were musicals, but until sound capability came around after 1927, it was nigh impossible to do them on film. And even after sound came around. You know, Dorothy figured out how to put a mic on a pole and create a boom mic, but you were still limited in terms of what you could do with sound and with music because, um, you know, there was, you know, fig- mo- a lot of sound either had to be recorded live. It was difficult to, you know, lip sync to 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 something, or that sure. you had. You had some degree of post dubbing capable but you know it was certainly not as easy as it would get later once we had you know magnetic tape so oftentimes you were like you had musicians performing live on another part of the sound stage and you had the talent you know singing singing live or you know or, or at least being able to hear uh, what was going on? So, so the review was using the limited means of film to give the kind of spectacle that you'd have on stage, like if you went to an actual vaudeville show, where you would have uh, comedy and straight music acts, and create and create that. You know that it's, you know, it arguably it's they say uh, the 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 pictures killed vaudeville. Um, I have an indirect. Personal connection to this in that my great great uh, grandfather uh, Hubert Hoyck was a theatrical empresario in Cincinnati, Ohio. A- at one time, he had three uh, stage theaters, and cool. and uh, he, among other things, he was one of the first people to install a revolving door. And it was a resounding flop because because pe- people didn't understand how it worked. <laughs> but what what eventually happened is in the the third in the in the twenties uh, when when the pictures came in uh, the a lot of the studios owned their own circuits at the time, and you know, the the demand for live events or at least not only live events. You know the, you know, you, ha- you had plenty of things where you'd have you know, you go to Radio City and see the Rockettes and then you'd have a movie. Uh, but, you know, the circuits bought out all of these uh, theaters. And so my family was out of uh, the theatrical business, you know, by by the 20s. And it wasn't a, so, you know, I had to gain infamy because of the fact that my uh, great grandmother invented the turkey laser hmm <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but that's another story for another time. So, <laughs> but, yeah, so you had, so Vaudeville, th- that the Paramount on Parade, just like all these other review films that the other studios were doing, is basically, a you know, a Vaudeville show on film and film allowing you a certain degree of special effects that you wouldn't have. But this opening right. number where the guys are introducing themselves. Um, I'm thinking this had to have been a convention of vaudeville because most people will look at this sequence and the very first thing they're going to think of is the, and I'm blanking on the title, but the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he is talking about his, you know his show business career and how he started off you know, and he doing the doing this introduction. Was like, "Oh, we're the boys of the chorus. We hope you like our show. We know you're rooting for us, but now we have to go." I
0: just, I think the title of that short is called just called "What's Up, Doc?" We're the boys of the chorus.
1: Yes. So that, so that, so it's kind of
0: playing into that convention. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it's, it's perfectly quaint, and it leads us right into um, the first big musical number that we actually get to see. Um, which is uh, Buddy Rogers and Lillian Roth uh, uh, singing about love on top of a gigantic clock, um, which is uh, uh, quite quite the fun uh, uh, set that that they're on. It feels like something out of Alice in Wonderland, um, and yeah, and they just they just sing about love and there's a chorus and that's it.
1: <laughs> and I think this could potentially be one of the Arsener segments. Okay. Uh, one because Buddy Rogers had worked with her on uh, get your man yep and that there is the the way the number is staged at the beginning of the number they're kind of in a frozen tableau which is reminiscent of uh, the wax museum segment from uh, get your (laughs) man that that this might have been a particular motif that she liked and the fact that it's a you know, a little, uh, you know, kind of it's it's you know sweet, but a little kind of melancholy at the same time, and yeah. that definitely seems to be her stock and trade.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, throughout the film, and when we get to it, I'll be like. If I had to bet on any of them, I'd probably say it was this one that was her. But throughout the most of the film, I was just like, eh, I'm not sure. But but I I hadn't really considered that aspect. And yeah, that that aspect of of kind of uh, people frozen, sweet and melancholy is that that is an apt description of 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 Arzner's work as sweet and melancholy. Um, yeah, and it's it's it's. it's Perfectly lovely. I feel like a lot of this is just like a most of it is is quite slight um, in terms of, of of it's a uh, lasting impact. Um, like I've got a list here of all the scenes and had I not had this list, I might be only remembering maybe four or five scenes throughout the entire thing. But the next one, I definitely do remember. And the next, the next, uh, bit is, is a, it's an extended, uh, comedy sketch and it's called, uh, murder will out. And it stars William Powell, Clive Brooke, Warner Oland, Eugene Pallett, and, uh, uh once again, Jack Oakey. And it's about, uh, uh, all these, if we start out with um all of these uh, uh, actors hanging out at this table and um one and a guy's walking through there's like hey are you going to be in this uh uh, sketch he's like no I'm uh, are you going to be singing he's like no I'm going to be in this mystery sketch that was written especially for me um playing this character and each table he goes at they all say the same thing that this sketch was this mystery sketch was written especially for me and then finally we get the mystery sketch and it's Fu Manchu (laughs) um and so that was, that was, that was lovely. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Oh,
1: well, well, if you look, if you look at Warner Olin's career, it's based almost entirely of playing Asians when he was anything but.
0: Yeah, no, no, he's a, he's a, he's a Swede. Um, yes. And yeah, and, and it's, uh. uh Fu Manchu has just murdered uh, a man and all and all of these other actors William Powell Calibro uh, uh, come into play their their char- these characters that they're famous for playing um, is and we're going to solve this mystery and they're they're so obsessed with themselves that they can't see that it's obviously the Asian man right in front of you that did it uh, <laughs> and... well it,
1: it's well specifically he's telling them I did this you know, right. That he's taking pride in his work and no none of them are taking him seriously so he's just got to kill them off in order to prove that he means business um yeah that yeah. it is that what's notable is uh this is you're seeing william powell before he went on to create his probably most famous uh detective character who wasn't even a real detective but Correct. it was uh Uh, Nick Charles from uh, the Thin Man movie series where he was, you know, he was a former, he was a former police detective who married rich and, but he and his wife are now, you know, part of the cocktail set and incredibly well off, but they can't resist solving crimes that, that it became a template for, you know, the dilettante detective that we've, scene in stuff like Murder She Wrote or Heart to Heart and so this is this is him before he went on to that it's one of the earliest sound uh, depictions of Sherlock Holmes before the Basil Rathbone series of uh, Holmes movies that came about and uh, Philo Vance was a detective character who had a series of books and but that which Paramount had optioned, and they made several Philo Vance uh, you know, mysteries at the studio. So this was you know, cro- cross-plugging plug- at the time
0: we there's a podcast that we recorded um that hasn't been released yet which is part of a larger project but you talked about uh at one point a metaphor of older films being like salads that were occasionally had shards of glass in them and uh yeah right now we're picking through the glass right now <laughs> and <Yeah>. uh <laughs> and yeah and it, so there is some that I I did quite enjoy um when uh uh William Powell and when would and Sherlock get killed off that how they are dispensed of is that their death scenes are rather rather the the physical comedy is good and then when uh uh Fu Manchu uses uh, trap doors to whisk whisk their bodies away i was like oh didn't see that coming, and so there, there's there's elements of something funny in here, but it's mostly just overshadowed by the the blatant racist caricature, and and then it ends with the stinger where the guy who was walking around asking everyone about uh, I, I believe it's Oki, uh, who was walking around asking everyone about their part in this role, is like and it turns out that the dead man was alive all along, and that it was actually written for me! And so, yeah, so there you go. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> uh, um, which segues us into another bit, which when I was looking at the list of, of scenes in here, I was like, oh, no, um, which is because the, 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 the n- title of the scene is Origin of the Apache. And I was like, oh, no. But as it turns out, it's actually um a it's Marie Chevalier and Evelet Brandt doing the parody of the Apache dance. Yes. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Ask a Frenchman. (laughs) And when I did some further research, it turns out that the Apache dance was actually does have its origins um, in that it was developed uh, by uh, people would call these. They called it the Apache dance because it originated from street gangs who were savage like the Apache. Um, And so there is still that. But what what this scene is and this was the scene where I was like, oh, right, we're in pre-code times, um, which is. Um, it's uh, uh, Maurice Chevalier and Evelyn Brent doing this this back-and-forth sexual tension catfight, essentially, between them as as they, they seem to be fighting, but then they're dancing and they're t- actually together. And it's just a bit of physical comedy slapstick. Yes,
1: and uh, specifically, they are singing lyrics to a composition which has been considered you know, that... It's a it's a musical cue you will hear in several other cartoons and right. you know, compositions. That it's like if you were to describe what the Apache dance is like, it's usually done to this composition. There was a huge thread on uh, Twitter about a week or so ago where someone like listed all of these classical right. compositions that have been used for comedic effect in cartoons and you know some of them familiar some of them like oh so that's what it's called uh, mm-hmm. and it was a very helpful guide and yeah. this this is sequence uh is generally regarded to have
0: been ernst Lubitsch's. uh right yeah and, and it's and it's perfectly delightful. Um, it's just two actors bursting with charm and with lots of chemistry. And and then towards the end they start to strip, and, and it's 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 a great visual gag where we see we where we see them initially stripping on camera, um, taking off their jackets. Um, at Evelyn Brandt just takes off her dress and she's old. She's in this very much much smaller white dress underneath, and then we get. C- close-ups of all the clothes being thrown off and then we when it we're exp- it's building up to cutting the back supposedly naked but we come back and they're in these gigantic overcoats and they walk out of the room and I was like oh, come on it's <laughs> the uh, the 30s edition of selling the sizzle and not the steak lovely little sequence um and it goes into uh the next scene which is missing which is a uh, song of the gondolier where Nino Martini who we did see get introduced um He's like, here's a nice young singer from Italy, and he's gonna sing us a song, and then we just don't get to sing the song, uh, <laughs> and where he was going to sing, uh, "Come Back to Sorrento." So again, that's that is it. It survives complete. It's in the UCLA uh, uh, restoration, but uh, we don't have ac- We didn't have access to it, so. Yeah, but that leads us into the, the next scene, which we did have, which is in a hospital where we've got Leon Errol again um, as an old man who's supposedly dying but seems perfectly fine with a cast of characters, his family, and nurses uh, basically all acting as if he's already dead. We've got Gene Arthur and Phillips Holmes and David Newell.
1: Yes, uh, yes. Gene Har- Arthur is playing the... Uh... nurse who has a terrible bedside manner and (laughs) uh, uh holmes and newell are uh like the relatives who are already arguing over who's going to get his fortune and i i not to toot my own horn but uh when i was looking this up on wikipedia one of the names was missing and so i searched around
0: and found it and i added it there so you're welcome Oh wow. Well, la-dee-da. Thank you very much, Mark. Toot toot away. Um, but uh this this was my favorite. I think this is my favorite scene in in the entire uh in the entire film because it just it's just it's it starts out with I just, I just find it hilarious how, how they're all being so dismissive of of this of this man, and there's there's the bit of physical comedy with with the he's got a blanket that's like you need to keep your feet covered and everything else covered, and he can't the blanket's just not big enough, um, which is. Fine, it's more, uh, uh, more, that's like kid humor, but once, every, every time the adults came in and acted, it's like, where they try to put him on the stretcher and is like, I'm not dead yet, oh, fine, we'll come back for you after our lunch break. Um, or, or when the two sons come in and they're talking about his estate, it's like, I'm still alive, and they both just keep saying, shut up, and it's, I just found all of that quite, quite funny. Oh, yeah, um, I, uh, in, um, before
1: we taped I was noodling around and I had seen a movie that it did not get a very large American release and it's I think you can get it as a in America you can get it as a burn-on-demand DVD but in the UK they've given it a balls out special edition blu-ray it's a uh, 73 British comedy called the National Health and which is the the slang term for their, you know, government-funded health care. And it stars uh, Lynn Redgrave and uh, Colin Blakely and Eleanor Braun. And it is a satire of, you know, the health system in England. And the structure of the movie is that it's telling two parallel stories with the same cast members. One is... A soap opera set in a hospital where you know everything is professional and top you know top of the line, and all the doctors and nurses care, and they're emotional, and they're trying to find love and heal people. Damn it! And <laughs> then they show what the real health is like, where you uh, there's an old man uh, who's talking to. A nurse and like a visiting relative, and he says, Oh, I'd like to use the toilet, please. Like, oh, certainly, we'll get you a bedpan. No, no, I want to use a toilet. And then meanwhile, you know, it's going down the chain of lowly employees, like, you know, nurse, get me a bedpan. Uh, nurse, get me a bedpan. What? I'm on my break.
0: No, we need a bed. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll try and check that out. Um, but, uh, yeah, no. This is in a hospital. My it's my, my personal favorite favorite sequence in the film, um, and that goes into the next sequence uh, in a girl's gym with Jack Oakey and Zelma O'Neill. And I saw this last night, and I can barely remember what happens in it. No, <laughs> so it's it's a pleasant enough
1: uh, dance number, and it's uh ve- and it's it's particularly athletic. You know that there's a lot of kind of. Physically comic choreography integrated into it, but yeah, it's you know not you know uh, to to use that line from Warrior. I remember it as being rather unmemorable.
0: Yeah, uh, it's and and since it's so unmemorable, I I highly doubt that Dorothy Arzner had a hand in it. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that goes into the next Technicolor se- sequence, which survives complete, but we don't have access to, which is called the Toreador, with Kay Francis and Harry Green, um, and it was a, par- a parody of Carmen, uh, uh, the f- the famous. Uh, uh, is it a musical or an opera? I think it's an opera, right? Carmen is definitely an opera. Okay. Yeah. I As I, I've 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 in my in my day. Uh, during high school, when I was part of the Mid Columbia Youth Symphony, I remember we we got to play a, a section of Carmen. Not the most famous section of Carmen, but we got to we got to play some Carmen. Um, uh, yeah, and then that our the next scene that we did get to see uh, is called the Montmartre Girl. I, I don't I don't know French. Uh, <laughs> Montmartre. Mont- yeah, um, which uh, stars uh, Ruth Chatterton. Um, and along with Stu Irwin, Friedrich March, Stanley Smith, and Jack Penick, Um and uh, all the men play. Uh, uh, I believe it's at the end of World War One um, that uh, they the armistice has happened, and they're all celebrating. Um, and at a at a bar, and then in comes Ruth Chatterton as a French woman who lost who who lost the love of her life, um, and how and she sings a song about how she wished that she could go to Idaho back with, back with him. And I was like, you don't need to go to Idaho. (laughs) Um, But it's a, it's a, she, she sings a lovely song and yeah. And this one I do
1: suspect is an Arzner uh, contribution because she directs Frederick March in uh, Merrily We Go to Hell. Right. And you know, again, it's got that, blend of romance and deep sadness that uh, she excels at in uh, the movies we've already seen the, uh,
0: th- this was the scene that w- that I mentioned earlier that um, if, if I had to guess if if anything was was directed by Arsenar, I, I I guessed that it would probably be the Friedrich March because just the very next year merrily we go to hell would would come out and and it just and it does have that very uh, a humane quality to it, where, um, where let's just let's just sit with this woman grieving for a bit, um, and yeah, it's 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 perfectly lovely. Um, uh, the the next bit though isn't um, <laughs> which is uh the park in Paris bit with Maurice Chevalier, um, which he plays a now a gendarme. Yes, um, he plays he, he plays a, a, a cop on his beat going through a park, and seeing all the couples kissing and there's there's Asian couples and there's I believe like an Eastern European couple in the park, and um and he sees a one woman that he's particularly infatuated with, um and and then uh uh it seems that one of the man that's cheating uh there's a man that's cheating on his wife and the wife shows up and he's angry and she's angry and so uh uh marie chevalier uh solves the situation by uh knocking the wife out and letting the man go about his uh uh his uh, uh adulterous business and which thanks hilarious <laughs> yeah um you know, I
1: I can't defend this. Uh you know <laughs> it, but I do I do think you know again this is likely another um Lubitsch, uh uh in, in, instance in that uh Lube, because uh Lubitsch was uh the the mentor to Billy Wilder. You know, Billy Wilder famously had a plaque in his office where as he would type, he'd be able to look at it and say, "How would Lubitsch do it?" Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Lubitsch was uh, definitely into uh, the I- into sex. Let's just you know call it for what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, that of that his uh, movies have the largest sense of uh, sexual play in terms of you know r- you know ridiculing the. the the mores and the, you know, the awkwardness that goes into the mating ritual. And so this is, you know, one of his clunkier versions of that, you know, that, you know, the joke joke is the fact that, you know, the cop should be breaking up all of these couples in the park, but he's leaving them be and, you know, actively interfering in other people's relationships, but not in the way that they want him to. Uh, it's yeah, it's it. Oh, yeah, you pluck you pluck this out of the salad. There's still there's still some crunchy croutons
0: left. Um, (laughs) Right. Uh, Um. He does uh, sing a song in it. Um. But I think what's what's hilarious about then I was like, okay, the song is is uh, uh. Uh, not the not the best song he's doing a fine job performing it uh but i think what's funny about it is that it then gets immediately parodied um in the next scene uh which is uh where uh mitzi green and in a scene called mitzi herself uh uh parodies marie chevalier (laughs) singing the song and you know just sheer delight watching this young girl. I, I'm not familiar with Mitzi Green, but apparently this very famous child actor. And, um, yeah, and she gives a delightfully physical performance in, as uh, uh, like, I'm going, this is, I am going to sing this song for you as Maurice Chevalier. And then she does, and it's, and it's hilarious. <laughs> well, and if, if the movie had gone original to plan
1: this would have this there would have been another uh chevalier parody in here that uh, there is that the earliest film footage of the marx brothers that exists is footage that was originally shot for Paramount on parade but was ultimately repurposed into a a trade film for exhibitors called The House That Shadows Built and right. it was and it was an excerpt from a a kind of a sketch review the Marxes were doing on Broadway called I'll Say She Is where each of them individually are coming into a talent agent's office trying to get a job and each of them claimed to have a Maurice Chevalier impersonation And, you know, each one is, you know, kind of progressively worse, you know, (laughs) until you get until you get the Harpo and he just whistles his way through it. And Shadows Built, which was not shown to the public, you know, it was, you know, it was it was highlighting the 20th anniversary of Paramount. And so they decided to put all of this kind of it's the equivalent of what we would call now a sizzle reel, you know, that, you know, if you're. If you're a theatrical exhibitor, you go, you go to show West in Vegas, You know, they wine and dine you, and they're showing you, oh, look what uh, we've done, and here's what we're going to give you, and you should play our movies and give us the terms we want for them. But it has popped up in other you know, documentaries on the Marxists, but more importantly, the Chevalier routine got repurposed into uh, the Marx's uh, second film for Paramount, Monkey Business, in, in, where this time you know, they've stowed away on a cruise liner, and they're about you know, to go through, through customs, and they, none of them have a passport, but they managed to lift Chevalier's passport, and they're trying to pass themselves off as him individually.
0: Um, yeah, and, and The House That Shadows Built is a film that it does show up on Dorothy Arzner's filmography because uh, she did, um, there is a se- segment of that film that it's dedicated to a film that she was intended to direct but never ended up directing. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be something that we cover on this podcast, but I think it does, does deserve a mention um, that it it is available on YouTube. You can go watch uh, uh, what, what survives of it, um, uh, of, of the house that shadows built. And yeah. And so, yeah, that's that I, I, I would have liked to have seen more, more uh, uh Marie Cheval. i would have loved to see more mitzi green and we did get to see more mitzi green um, well, and and this is a kind of a a
1: good segue to go into something uh because we've talked before on this podcast about how you know i've i've been obsessed with paramount uh since i was a kid they're like my favorite movie studio and and especially how in the 30s that, you know, Paramount was like, you know, the most sexually charged of all the studios. Right. But I I think that there are plenty, I think every major studio of that era probably had a couple of uh, noteworthy uh, non-Caucasians in their company. But, right, but. Paramount, I think, is particularly striking in that at that time, they had so much talent from different parts of the world that there's there's one uh, Paramount on Parade short that opens with, uh, you you know, the usual bevy of glamour girls. But this time they're all speaking in their native tongue about their. A performer of their country who is under contract at the studio. You had uh, Lupi Velez from Mexico. You had Anime Wong. You had Marlena Dietrich, and you had uh, there that there were all these people from different parts of the world. All these you know different ethnic representations under contract, and you know you know not. I mean, look, you know Anime Wong is getting you know Dragon Lady style roles but she's a marquee name at the studio that for all the cringeworthy ways that they're using their, their 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 non-white talent they are they're giving them representation that you're not really finding from the other studios and i so it's i think it's something that is worth Commending, you know that that it was this polyglot of influences from different cultures that was making those Paramount movies special, and you know that without that, and that they didn't have the same kind of uh, boilerplate look that you know MGM or, or Warner Brothers might had when you know most almost all of their talent was homegrown stateside and 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 you know, snow white.
0: No, um, and yeah, and Paramount on Parade they they mention it in the film how uh uh there's like we want this to be an international affair. Um and there were several re releases of different versions of the film that were released in France and in Germany. Yeah. With with material specifically designed for
1: those markets right that there are some there are some clips that aren't in here because they weren't meant for america but that where they shot segments for italy for france for germany for sweden uh you know, that they that this was that they were really thinking large in terms of you know we could take we can take our movies worldwide we're not just concerned about america and in turn you know we're poaching their best talent and bringing them to America. But, you know, that, you know, when when the when the climate got hostile in the the years leading up to World War II, that was kind of a good
0: thing. Yeah. People had a people had a way to to get out. Yes. Um. The next scene in in Paramount on Parade um, is the schoolroom, which uh, once again has Mitzi Green, and most more notably, it has uh, Helen Kane, who you mentioned Betty Boop earlier. Who I was like, hold on a second, as I was watching the scene, it's like she's acting in an awful lock like like Betty Boop, and I did some did some research, and yeah. She believed that she was a lot like Betty Boop because she sued Betty Boop over taking her taking her stick. Well, well, specifically, she sued she sued the
1: Fleischers, which uh, was probably an uneasy thing for Paramount because they had both the Fleischers and Helen Kane under contract at the time. Right. And it's like, can't we just settle this amongst ourselves?
0: <laughs> can't we all just get along? <laughs>
1: The, the Fleischers argued that the style of singing that Betty did and that Helen did existed before Helen was around and that right. Betty was emulating that because there is a modern, there's a, a modern day movement by some scholars to assert that Betty Boop is black because right. this was, you know, uh, known of, of uh, black performers of the time. And that, you know, that, this is what she would have been copying. And so Helen's copying off the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that I'm sure that because in the original, in the first appearance, Betty Boop is a dog and she's not named Betty Boop. It's Mm -hmm. that the Fleischers adjusted her appearance to become human. And it's, I would wager that maybe since Helen Kane was around at the same time, they were taking some liberties and, creating a similarity, but even then that would be what would be under what we call fair use, but they didn't have, they didn't quite understand that concept yet.
0: Right. Yeah. And yeah, and you can go and you can look into the history um, about how the characters related to Esther Jones and how um, there are (laughs) that, that, that baby and might, might as well have been, uh, uh just a whitewashed character in, in its origin as well so yeah uh f- 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 so much fun history <laughs> um but yeah so uh she yeah so so helen kane sings uh what did cleopatra say um and then that segues into the gallows song which is another uh technicolor sequence which we don't have however uh it's um the sound is also missing uh we still don't have the sound to that sequence but um but what people have done like uh, the restoration has done is that they use um because it has dennis king singing the song is what it does is it has the they just took his um his commercial recording so like the single that they put out of the song and they just copy paste it into the film um to sync sync it up with with the with the te- Technicolor footage that does still survive. But we didn't get to see that. What we do have next is um a a, a delightful little bit of, of visual trickery, which is for because for the most part, uh, a lot of this is there's not there's nothing inherently like, wow, only this could only be done in a film type of deal. Um, but we finally get uh, a little bit of, of, of visual effects with the next sequence, which is Dance Mad, which is Nancy Carroll and Abe Lyman's band singing a number, and it's introduced by a guy coming up and talking about how he's going to do this number and I'm I'm a magician, and how Nancy Carroll will emerge out of this shoe and he places down the shoe box and places down these shoes and then we zoom in and it and it match fades into a into a gigantic set of these gigantic shoes and shoe boxes and the shoe box opens, the lid comes off and there's Abe Lyman's band and Nancy Carroll comes out of the gigantic shoe and, and they sing their number. And I was like, okay, this is, this is cool. This is something that the, that, that little bit of visual stuff is that that's, that's what you come to the, that's what you go to the pictures for. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Oh yeah. Um, and again, another great, uh, athletic dance sequence you know that right. you know that it's you know the 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 song isn't that memorable but you know the energy that's brought to the st- the staging is infectious
0: yeah and it's it's a it's that one's a, a rather short sequence um and it leads into uh the next bit which is we another instance where we got the introduction to a scene but we don't actually get the scene itself um which is about which was going to have uh uh uh, it, Well, we start off with Richard Arlen, who I recognize is like, hey, you're in Wings. And so that was uh, so I, I he's playing on the piano and Gene Arthur and Mary Bryan, and James Hall and Gary Cooper and Fay Ray all show up around the piano. And the guy comes and introduces and here's and this is the one spot where we actually do know the director of the sequence because like and here's the director for this sketch uh this it's, it's it's edmund
1: golding who right. would later go on uh to make the original nightmare alley which is uh being remade by uh guillermo del toro and due for mm-hmm. this december and uh the razor's edge with uh, tyrone power you know, yeah. a couple of very you know important movies of the,
0: the 40s and yeah and so we they're all around the piano. They're talking about how great this number is going to be. And then we fade into Clara bow. <laughs> um, we, cause we on to the next bit, which is the redhead, which is Clara bow, And as it says, 42 Navy men. Um, and they're singing, singing a nice little Navy propaganda song. And Clara bow, I, I after seeing her in get your man. Um, and this was another bit where I was like, did Dorothy Arzner maybe do this one? thinking uh, the same thing. Um yeah, because we got Claire Beau who had worked um together on Get Your Man and then also uh the Wild Party uh from 29. Um and yeah, and it's and and after having seen her in Wings and Get Your Man, almost uh 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 Nearly four hours of uh, of of film, and now finally I get to hear her speak, and she can sing, and she can dance, and mm-hmm. there there there's this ridiculous myth
1: that's gone around that you know Clara Bow's career floundered in the sound era because she didn't have a good voice for sound movies, and uh, in this number, I mean, she you know she can you know she can sing, she's got a pleasant enough speaking voice. It's it 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 boggles the mind why she didn't continue on uh a- after this
0: yeah, I guess she just lost it um <laughs> but eh, no, but yeah there's there's a delight uh this in this sequence there's a there's there's some nice choreography and there's a delightful bit of rear screen projection um where um and it was funny because for a lot of it, i'm like I'm wondering if. Because a lot of this, this dance bit is in like medium close up on Clara Bow and we can see that all these men are dancing behind her but we can't actually see them dancing because we are just got a close up on Clara Bow for a bunch of it uh, but then we go to the wides and then we go finally climaxes with her being hoisted up in front of this gigantic rear screen projection of this gigantic navy vessel uh, a battleship and I was like well that's quite the image and it's it's pretty neat <laughs> well and
1: uh watching this number uh and uh, aside from the reason uh, one of the reasons that i you know i thought that this might be an arzner uh contribution you know not just because of uh clara bow and, and you know that you know this is you know a drop of water going off in multiple directions but there is a uh, there is an artist that i'm rather fond of uh named uh, vanessa beecroft and mm-hmm. her her stock and trade has been uh staging live tableau of people you know that often t- you know that that she will have these installations where it's like you know 50 live models uh, you know either posed in in a statue-like form or uh, just, you know, standing still. And sometimes, you know, she's used, you know, women, uh, but she's very strikingly at one point used like uh, 50 Navy men in their, you know, dress whites. Uh, uh, Kanye West was very fond of her work. And I think he poached, he, they collaborated on some, one thing, but I think he also poached from her later on for some of his uh, own avant-garde uh know explorations but okay. but i think but i feel like you know that again the notion of this is one of those rare occasions where it's a woman being backed up by men instead of a guy doing a number in front of a bunch of chorus girls and i feel right. like that kind of gender reversal uh is you know right up Arsner's alley right. e- especially the idea of you know, for lack of a better description objectifying the man
0: for a change. Mhm. Yeah, cuz spiffy sailors in spiffy outfits they they sure they sure spiffy. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and this brings us to uh the second to last sequence um which is a George Bancroft joint. It's uh, uh it's called Impulses and it's him reflecting on an evening that he had with a bunch of of high society people. And who include Kay Francis and Cecil Cunningham. And this was easily my least favorite sketch in the whole. Really? Because this one was my my personal favorite. Okay, because maybe this is just a case of 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 comedy being subjective, because I really just found everyone just being so unpleasant to each other. And I'm like, Am I supposed to be enjoying this or think this is funny? Like it's just a bunch of people being cruel to each other. <laughs> well, we should describe the sketch. The sketch is that
1: uh, you know George you know, first introduces himself to the camera, and he's he's a character actor who mostly played heavies and bad guys, so he's right. got this reputation. And uh, you know, I've like I've always I've always felt a little bit of. Uh, affection and sadness for any decent actor who gets typecast as a heavy. you know because you know usually they're the sweetest individuals off screen, but you know they're always so intimidating that you know people and well, I, maybe I relate to it because I have actually seen people cross the street to get away from me because you know I have this resting murder face. Um, <laughs> so but George is describing, going to a typical Hollywood party where, you know, everybody is, you know, being, you know, outwardly polite and, you know, complimentary and fawning, but, you know, it's clearly through clenched teeth. And then he says, Now what would what would have happened if everybody had said exactly what they were really thinking? And mm-hmm. so and that's when the unpleasantry begins because, you know, it's now all of these people just openly admitting I really don't like you. I'm you know, I have to invite you at this function because it you know to hold up my social standing, but you know I ju- I just think that it's it, it, it you know and that it, and you know to know what you know, the you know the perception versus the reality is a comedy staple. Uh, you know, that, you know, you've uh, you, you look at classic mad magazine where, you know, they have like, you know, if we can see what's behind, you know, the door of your doctor's office. And it's, you know, you know, the, you know, the doctor, you know, cavorting with a couple of nurses with a martini while you're in the lobby, ca- hacking your Brayton's out um, it. I agree with you that sometimes comedy re- leans on cruelty too much as a crutch. You know, that it thinks, oh, let's just be nasty to someone and that'll automatically be funny. And and that and it's not, you know, that I feel like but there has to be something that gives it a reason to. And I think it's the fact that he's specifically parodying, you know, the 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 phony schmoozing of uh, upper of upper class uh, part party life. And so you know, you're not supposed to like any of these people anyway. It's just like, oh, drop the facade. And we're finally getting to see them, you know, tear each other apart. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Maybe this was a case of it was uh, one in the morning and uh, while watching this and I was already kind of uh, uh, not falling asleep, but just kind of like, okay, I'm I'm ready for this to be kind of over. And then a bunch of these people start – Maybe it was just me not quite getting the bit itself, and um, and just kind of seeing it on the on the superficial level of, this is just a bunch of people being mean to each other and eventually resulting to into physical violence and and crashing vases on each other's heads and throwing each other at pianos and throwing each other out windows, kind of thing. And I was like, really, is this really necessary? But I, I might have to rewatch the scene. Um, but. Uh, so but yeah okay I I now now reflecting on it I guess I can see a little bit more of of what it was going for but at at during, while watching it was it was I was being quite I was kind of I was I was rejecting it and I was just like this what why, why do we need this? Like I, I do, I, 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 but the, but the irony of that is, is that I was also like, I might actually use that riddle that he does. It's like, what's the difference between a post box and a goose egg? And when they say, I don't know, it was like, ha, stupid. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, that's kind of, it's mean, but it's kind of funny. Yeah but so all right i'll 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 give the piece the benefit of the doubt and and that that leads us into the finale um which was originally in technicolor but we have it and it only survives in black and white Um, and it's, uh, once again, Chevalier, um, doing a number, uh, he's a chimney sweep and he's singing about, uh, sweeping the clouds away and, um, and he'll, and you will remember the chorus by the end because it's just repeated over and over and over again, um, with just a, with a gigantic chorus, girls' chorus line, which includes Iris, Adrian, and Virginia Bruce. Um, but... And it's just one big number of, hey, here we are. I'm gonna be happy, and I'm looking down on you people below, and I'm sitting on a rainbow, sweeping the clouds away, and there you go. The well, th- this is this is the thing that this is the kind of musical
1: number that they want that studios wanted to say you can't get this on the stage. Right. You know, that this is the kind of you know, singing and dancing spectacle that only the movies can deliver to you.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the fact that it was done in color was supposed to be that big, you know, boost over over the top. And like, look, because the, the choreography where there's, a, you know, kind of a lot of flag play, it's clear you're clearly supposed to be seeing different colors coming through, that it is supposed to just be this explosion of, you know, sight and sound uh, and that, you know, it's still a well-choreographed piece, but it's very muted in in (laughs) its black and white form.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and there's still stuff like um we get various angles that would be impossible to be get if you were in an audience like in a in a theater kind of thing where the the camera's like above the actors now and kind of stuff like that. And yeah, it's it it feels very different from the rest of the film because all of the other big numbers um that were in Technicolor were removed and we didn't get to see them. And so having something big on this kind of scale feels since this is the one bit of Technicolor that we did get to see, uh, that was originally Technicolor that we did get to see, that it's it feels funny, uh, that it it I mean it's certainly a big note to go out on, but it, it feels uh, uh at odds with the rest of the film, which is mostly just very like we're gonna have little bits set in smaller, smaller just rooms kind of kind of thing, and and then we finally get this one big number at the end to close out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that you know, as as I
1: as I mentioned, yeah, after after this uh, this kind of they they wouldn't do another movie this specific way. Yeah, they they still had other what you could call uh, sketch movies like uh, International House with uh, W. C. Fields or uh, the Big Broadcast, w- w- where you know it's it's a review, but. From this, this go, you know, the episodic nature of this uh, sets the stage for all of the various short subjects that Paramount would do afterwards. Because you know they had their Hollywood on Parade uh, p- p- puff pieces for the studio, but they also did uh, they did two reelers with uh, you know the comedians that they had under contract. Uh, Probably the most famous ones are the the three with W. C. Fields that Max Sennett did for the studio.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, no, I think there might be there might there might be even more than that. But you know the the one that are, the ones that everyone remembers are the the dent the dentist, the golf specialist, and the fatal glass of beer. And the fatal glass of beer is uh, one of my favorite shorts uh, to this day. I you know look at bad events and say, ah, Taint a fit night out for man or beast. Uh, but then uh, Paramount also had, uh, you know, the the bouncing ball uh, sing-along shorts, you know, that where you would have, uh, they there some some, a lot, most, a lot of these shorts are in the public domain and you can find them scattered around mm-hmm. YouTube, but, you know, you'll find like, you know, young and really hot uh ethel merman uh singing uh you take somebody else and then there's a bouncing ball section to that you know that it was that there you're seeing the you're seeing the roots of what you know the studios provided entertainment in beyond just you know telling a narrative story you know the that you know, the episod the episodic pleasures of going to the theater.
0: What the the last big thing I I, I was really it's really a question that I have, Mark, because you're undoubtedly more familiar with familiar with this. Is so all of the stuff that we didn't get to see the Technicolor stuff that's in the UCLA Film and Television Archive restoration. Um, how does first of all, how does one get? get screenings of these films that that they that they have there and then two, why don't they release the restorations? Why are they only available at the archive? well there
1: there are multiple there are multiple reasons um, I would say uh, the the big one uh, the big one at least in the case of this is that uh, Universal owns, all the the pre-48 Paramount movies. So the onus would be on them to release it if they so chose, and they have not. You know mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of the pre-48 library that Universal owns, they've been they've been very stingy with putting it out. They or, the, they're, or at least they're concentrating only on you know the really. Big popular stuff you know they're gonna do The Marx Brothers movies they're gonna do The early Billy Wilder Stuff like Double Indemnity They're gonna do the Marlena Dietrich movies But you all of these All of these programmers That were done with uh, stars That have been forgotten uh, You know that They used to be in heavy rotation On television because You know stations would buy these Packages and they would run you know run the hell out of them but now that you know you don't really have you don't really have movies on television anymore they're they're on you know cable or they're streaming and you know that a lot of the the primary audience for these movies in a sense has died and they started dying just as these movies stopped being aired so the the next generation has not had a chance to discover them like previous Generations did you know like I was Saying earlier about the cultural Osmosis right. you know, where you, Where you were Generally on the same page with everybody Because you were all watching the same Thing even if you had cable There were certain channels that Were ubiquitous and you would you would turn Them on you know that even in the The early days of American movie Classics and Turner classic movies That you could see certain Things there so so there's a so the studio is not actively supporting the catalog. Uh, UCLA, ha, it, you know they they do wonderful things in preserving film, but they also you know that you can like you can rent their prints for screenings. Like there are a lot of movies that they have done restorations on where even if a major studio owns the movie you're getting the print from ucla like uh if you were to play the smiling lieutenant uh which is one of the Lubitsch movies with uh maurice chevalier that paramount made and universal now owns uh you're not going to get the print from universal you're going to get the print from ucla Mm -hmm. and so which means you have to both pay Universal to screen the movie, and you have to pay UCLA for access to the print, and right. they use the revenue that they get from, you know, providing material to other people to fund their work. You know that you know that you know they're they're uh they 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 can only do so much you know nonprofit for the sake of of the work itself work, but know they're they're trying they have to find a way to subsidize it and the problem is that oftentimes they're charging an arm and a leg for it because they can and Mm -hmm. so it's only going to be certain deep-pocketed venues and individuals who are going to put up that money that there's there is a state there's a maxim in amongst my friends who are uh, preservationists which is Archiving without access is pointless,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so, and I've heard frustrated, uh, you know, documentary people and other filmmakers who have tried to get access to UCLA-controlled material and could not afford what they wanted, and in a, and even when they tried to tell them, look, you know, we'll give you something, but the exposure that this is going to get in our project is ultimately going to benefit you and because otherwise people aren't going to know that it's here. And it's like, we want the money. <laughs> so, so, so um, now before COVID put everybody into sequester, UCLA has done regular uh, screenings and bl- uh, program blocks of material. And that's where I've gone to see some of the restorations they've done, you know, some of which are now on home video, some of which are still not available. Uh, you know, their their restoration of Wanda for years, you know, you could only see it from their print, but now thankfully Criterion has licensed it. Uh, it's it um when I was doing uh, research into the filmmaker Christina Hornisher, she was in the UCLA film program, so I was able to go to the campus and get, uh, you, know, a, 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 you know, fill out the right documents to get the bona fides to be able to look at her her student films on the premises. Like, you know, I could look at, you know, a videotape or a DVD of her films in the library. You know, I right. could I couldn't check them out. Uh, so there is so yeah so it's it is a double-edged sword that you know and it's not just ucla it's the library of congress it's the eastman mm-hmm. house it's all these places that do restorations that you know they're doing they're doing a great service for preservation but most of them are you know need to be compensated for access to it, and it's out of reach
0: of the average layperson. Right. Um, yeah, and so I, so I guess I'm just wondering: is like, let's say, <laughs> let's say, um, in the incredibly unlikely event that by July fourth we'll be able to return to life as normal because of vaccinations and all that jazz, but let's just say that sometime like, let's say August, um, would it be possible to go down, and everything's reopened, would it be possible to go down to the UCLA archive, to the physical library itself, and to get a screening of Paramount on Parade in its, in its completed, quote-unquote completed version? I would
1: suspect they probably have created a digital master of their restoration that would you would be allowed to view on premises the same way that if you went to you know there are certain things you can only see at the museum of television right but if you go but if you go there you you know you can go into a private room and watch it there and take mm-hmm. notes there
0: just just a thought that i have just brimming around in my mind it's like maybe just maybe if after 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 everything is over that maybe i could just go down um to la because i've never been to la and just see all these movies at this archive thing it's like it might be might be might be fun mm-hmm. um, yeah espe-
1: well especially since most of them are really short you could probably right you know knock out a, a couple in one visit
0: um all right, so I think that pretty much does it for uh, uh, this. Is, this has been a a longer episode of Dance Dorothy Dance. Our our our, but uh, it,
1: it, it is it is conversely the longest episode with the least amount of Dorothy content.
0: Right. Yeah, and and even the stuff that is that we're not really sure what's hers. So, uh, but yeah, but it, it's 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 fun to go to go through films like these and just go into the there's just so much in there um but yeah uh uh next next uh not next week this is a biweekly podcast but next time uh we'll be going we'll be doing the uh, 1930, uh, film that Dorothy Arzner we know directed all of. Um, and, uh, that is, uh, Sarah and Son, uh, which has Friedrich March and Ruth Chatterton. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so that, that, I'm, if, if, if we had to bet money on what film or what scene, uh, uh, Dorothy Arzner directed in this, almost assuredly it's, it's the, the Mont- Montmartre girl, uh, uh, with Ruth Chatterton and Friedrich March. Um,
1: uh, you know, as the saying goes, uh, dance with the partner what brung ya.
0: Yeah. And uh, so, so yes, yeah, so that's what we'll, what we'll be doing uh, next time is uh, Sarah and Son. And uh, with that, uh, might as well just wrap it up. Uh, Mark, why don't, why don't you plug yourself? Well, uh,
1: I'm on... I'm on Twitter at uh, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, the uh, phonetic pronunciation of my name, Hoyk. Uh, my my blog is projectorhasbendrinking.blogspot.com. Uh, I've got some essays there I've wrote in the last couple of months that I'm very proud of. By the time this episode airs, uh, my first uh, solo match in the, the movie trivia schmodown will be... Uh, Taking place with uh, the uh, TV TV actor and uh, uh, other creator uh, Griffy New- uh, Newman, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, you'll get to see you'll get to see uh, the you know the darker evil version of me there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, is is, uh, is Griffin Newman? I'm assuming he's playing a face, right? Um, he's. Uh... I, he seems like the person who would play a face. Uh he's going to uh, he's going to surprise you in this match. Okay. All right. Uh uh I like to when I think of Griffin Newman I immediately think of at him as being the only funny part of Woody Allen's A Rainy Day in New York. And, um, he has one scene as like directing this bit and he has a legitimately funny joke about Jeb Bush. It's the one moment in the film that made me laugh. Um, but, uh, and he was also the first member of the cast to donate his entire salary that he got from the film to rain. So, um,
1: and, uh, and let us, let us, and let us give credit to, uh, playing Arthur in the last incarnation of the
0: tick, right? Yes. Yes. That, that as well, that's probably what he's most well known for. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that I, I'll, I'm looking forward to that. Um, speaking of things to look forward to, uh, here on the Patreon, if you're listening to this, you are a patron. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I, 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 I at, at the start I was saying, it's like, ah, we just kind of do this for fun. I, I'm really not doing it for the money. Um, patrons are whatever we're, we're we're doing this for 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 the sake of it and now I, as things are going along i'm like wow i'm putting a lot of hours into this and i might need to start working more hours and so it's it's a thing where if we, we would very much appreciate uh 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 sh- sh- shouting out um if you could share this um kind of thing is like we're v- very much grateful for 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 your contribution and if you could help because it is ensuring the continuance of of this of this of this of this project these projects of diving into marginalized cinema and so yeah
1: yeah we're very we don't don't want to go reverend gene scott on you but we know you got the money you know you got the money god knows you got the money so give us the damn money
0: Uh okay If you have the money, (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, but speaking of things to look forward to, we got, got big projects. Uh, I've uh, got five hours of audio, um, that's all dedicated to one film. And I'm, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of, of the work that went into it. And I hope that, uh, uh, I'll be able to be proud of, of the result of the resulting, uh, uh, audio that comes out of it. So. Um, with that, uh, yeah, uh, you could find me on Twitter at Letterboxd, Blu-ray Closet, and, uh, yeah, with, with that, uh, we know that there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and mainstream stuff, so thank you for spending time with us here today, here on The Margins. Good night. Uh-huh.